Okay, so we are in chapter, what's my water bottle? Four. Making pretty good progress. I'm hoping we're going to get through chapter four today. Because it is a little bit sad. Like the story of Ruth, a uh, story of Esther is actually quite exciting to read through. It's quite dramatic. And it's blah, 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 blah. It like builds and gets it, yeah, very rapid. And uh, so it is a little bit sad to kind of break it all up because you lose a little bit of that. But it's also, there's so much there that you want to dive into. So whatever, it is where, what it is. But we're in chapter four now. What's happened so far in the story of Esther? What was chapter one? Vashti. What about Vashti? Correct. So Vashti was the queen, Xerxes, they were having a big party and Xerxes wanted her to come and show herself, show, show off in front of his friends. She said, no, they're like, your wife's disrespecting you. Nobody's going to respect you if your wife doesn't respect you. And so you need to make an example of her. And so she was struck off as queen, no longer queen. What happened in chapter two? Why are they collecting young women? So he needs a new queen, right? Vashti's gone, time has passed, he needs a new queen, and his advisors say, well, why don't you just collect up all the most beautiful young women in your kingdom and then pick the one you like the most? And he thought that was a good idea. And so he did. And one of the people, one of the young girls who got included in this is... Who was... A young Jewish orphan, right? She's been raised by her, her cousin Mordecai, who's presumably older than her, more like an uncle, but her cousin Mordecai. And she gets taken into the palace with all the other young ladies and she gets chosen. This young Jewish orphan gets chosen to be queen of the largest empire on earth, Persia. Okay, that was chapter two. What happened in chapter three? We met a new guy. And he got promoted. Haman got promoted. Who was he? He was like, I don't know, bad guy. What's his, where's his background? An Agagite, yep. Which means what? Um, he's like somewhat related to Saul. Okay. His story relates to Saul, but how? Amalekites, yeah. But he didn't destroy all of them. He like left the king, whose name was Agag. The king of the Amalekites was Agag, and rather than kill Agag, Saul spared Agag, and and Samuel wasn't happy. God wasn't happy. That basically ended Saul's reign. And but now, 500 years later, Haman is the descendant of that Agag that Saul didn't do what he was supposed to, he didn't kill. Okay, so okay, yeah, there's this guy called Haman, he gets promoted. Then what? He sends out a decree to kill all the Jews. Why? Because he doesn't want to. Because Mordecai didn't. Oh, 
Right, so there's this guy called Agag, he's a, descendant, uh, he's a guy called Haman, who's a descendant of Agag. He gets promoted to basically like second most important person, well, a, a very, very high up person in the Persian Empire. And part of what came with that was everybody was supposed to bow to him in respect. But Mordecai would not bow, would not show respect. And so Haman gets really angry and he decrees kill all the Jews. He goes to, he decides, it says that the idea of just getting revenge on Mordecai was repugnant to him. He wanted to take revenge on all the Jews. Basically meant it was like, he looked, it was disgusting to him. Like it was lower than, it wasn't worth his time. Like he looked down on it, right? He decided, no, he's going to take revenge on the entire Jewish world. Because at that stage, pretty much all the Jews lived in the Persian Empire and he was going to kill all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. And so he goes to King Xerxes and he says, hey, there's this group of people who are living in your kingdom and they're different from everybody else. They have a different God, they have a different law, and they don't obey our laws. Now, in reality, they did obey the laws. They just didn't, he, this one Jew didn't obey the one law that said he had to bow to this guy Haman that he didn't respect. But anyway... He says, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver, which was two-thirds of the total amount of wealth that the Persian Empire brought in every year. He said, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver if you allow me to write this decree that we wipe them out. And the king's like, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. Here's my ring. Do it. And so they wrote this law that in 11 months' time, in the 12th month of the year, on the 14th day of the month, I think, 13th day of the month, everybody in the entire Persian Empire can basically kill any Jews they find. It's like the purge. And take all their stuff. So that was chapter three, and it says that the whole city, the whole city was in like an uproar. What the heck is this about? But King Xerxes and Haman were sitting in the palace, had no idea what was going on, drinking together, and that was the end of chapter three. Which brings us to chapter four. Who wants to read the first three verses? Cool, you can start. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might ever enter the king's gate clothed with the sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so Mordecai becomes aware of what's happened. What does he become aware of? Which is? Every man, woman, and child basically sentenced to death in 11 months' time. Where does the decree come from? The king. What does that mean? 
Yep. Comes right from the top. And there was a thing in Persian society that once, and we see this in other places, uh, you certainly see it with Daniel, and, I, and it comes up in the book of Esther, is that in the Persian empire, once the king passed a law, it couldn't, you cannot change it. The king himself cannot change the law. So you have this law that's been passed that every man, woman, and child, every Jewish man, woman, and child is going to be killed in 11 months' time, and there's nothing you can do to change it. And then probably worst of all, became aware that, like, whose, who was, uh, whose fault was it? Like, where did this all come from? Why? Why did Haman want to do this? Because Mordecai didn't bow. That would be pretty intense, right? To realize what your decision, you're doing what you believe is the right thing, leads to this for everybody else. So what did he do when he became aware of this? Tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and covered himself in ashes. And he went out into the public square, into the city, crying out in a loud and bitter voice, making everybody aware of the, like, the anguish that he felt. What's sackcloth? Pretty much. It comes from a, from a Hebrew word, sack. S-A-Q. And apparently that's where the, our term for sack comes from. Is from the Hebrew word for a bag, which would have been made out of like quite a coarse, weaven, woven fabric. It's uncomfortable, like a like a, but not a um, not a not one of the paper bag sacks, but that kind of, and be yeah, very scratchy. Sometimes made out of I think like goat hair and stuff like that. But anyway, so you put these on and cover yourself in ashes. And apparently he wasn't alone in this. It says that the Jews throughout every province. Wherever the law was announced, there was considerable mourning among the Jews, and they also put on sackcloth and ashes, or many of them also put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, what was the point of putting on sackcloth and ashes? Extremely what? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was a way of showing like how how much you're hurting on the inside and demonstrating on that that on the outside, right? To show like this deep deep emotional anguish that you're feeling. They would demonstrate that by tearing all their clothes, like all the things of this world mean nothing to me and I'm dressed in this rags and and ashes which sort of speaks of death. And so sometimes this putting on sackcloth and 
sackcloth and ashes is associated with mourning, like mourning the death of somebody that you love deeply. So you see that with um, Jacob, when Jacob's, when Joseph's brothers come back with the, technic, the, the fancy robe and it's been torn and it's covered in blood and Jacob thinks that his beloved son Joseph has been killed by wild animals and it says that he put on sackcloth and ashes in mourning. Um, but it's also a way that people showed like sincerity and desperation when they were seeking God. So in, when the Assyrian king threatened to destroy Jerusalem, it says King Hezekiah, when he heard this, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went to the Lord's temple. So what's he doing? Going to seek God, right? And as part of that, he put on sackcloth. In Daniel, when Daniel realized that the 70 years of their exile in Babylon were just about over, and he started desperately praying to God to please deliver his people, restore them to Israel, it says that he turned, I turned my attention to the Lord God to implore him by prayer and request with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And so when, David want, uh, when Daniel wanted to show his desperation to God, he put on sackcloth and ashes. And then when Jonah goes to Nineveh and tells the Ninevites, in 40 days, God's going to destroy your city, it says that the people of Nineveh believed in God and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So this wearing of sackcloth and ashes, who is it directed to? Like I said, it's a way of demonstrating how deeply you're hurting, but who are, you, who are they trying to show that pain to? God, right? Yeah. So I guess the question is, the Jews in Persia, where do we go to? Oh, here, no. The Jews in Persia, when they're putting on sackcloth and ashes, what do you think they're doing it for? Who are they doing it for? They're pleading to God. Yeah. I think so. And for another reason, we'll see. I don't think they're just trying to show all the, their neighbors and all the Persians around them how upset they are. I think they're desperately, desperately pleading, crying out to God. And there's something else in there that I think suggests that because what else in here, certainly between David and Jonah, uh, Daniel and Jonah, what else did they do that's consistent with what the Jews did? Ashes. Sa sackcloth and ashes. What else? Fasting. Daniel, with M E 
turned his attention to the Lord to implore him by prayer and requests with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And the people of Nineveh declared a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes, uh, sackcloth and, and satin ashes. And if you go back to here, throughout each and every province where the king's edicts and law were announced, there was considerable mourning among the Jews, along with fasting, weeping, and sorrow, and, and many of them were wearing sackcloth and ashes. And so you have this like this other thing going on, which is fasting. Now, what is fasting? Not eating anything. <laughs> well, so I did, I, I did a little bit of a, dig, a deep dive into fasting in the Bible. And uh, it's used, the words for fasting in the Greek and the Hebrew are used about 48 times, I think. Yeah, about 48 times. There's four times when fasting is something people did purely for the sake of mourning somebody who had, lost, had died. And in all, all four times, it's Saul and Saul's sons that they're mourning. First Chronicles, when all the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard about everything the Philistines had done to Saul, all the warriors went and recovered the bodies of Saul and his sons and brought them to Jabesh. They buried their remains under the oak tree in Jabesh, Chabesh and fasted for seven days. And so this presumably is a fast of mourning because they're so upset about what's happened to, and, and you get that where you're like so upset you can't eat, basically. Four times. There are also about four times where it just people had no food available and so they were fasted. That was uh, Jesus when he has the 5,000 who come and listen to him talking for three days and then he wants tells his disciples to like get them food to eat because they're going to die if they walk home having fasted for three days but they weren't fasting in a spiritual sense necessarily although they were there to listen to Jesus but they just they had no food so anyway so there are a few times where fasting is is used in that way but almost every other time that fasting is described in the bible it's related to prayer We had Daniel earlier imploring the Lord with prayer and requests with fasting. You have Nehemiah. Again, when Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is in ruins back in Israel, it says, When I heard these things, I sat down abruptly, crying and mourning for several days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting and praying. They go together, right? Uh, Ezra. When Ezra is going to be leading thousands of Jews on a dangerous five-month journey back to Jerusalem from Babylon, it says, he says, it's quite kind of funny, I was embarrassed to request soldiers and horsemen from the king to protect us from the enemy along the way, because we had said to the king, the good hand of God is on everyone who is seeking him, but his great anger is against everyone who forsakes him. So he's got this dangerous journey. He's going to be taking thousands of people on this long trip all the way back to Jerusalem. And it's very dangerous. But he's embarrassed to ask the king, the Persian king, to send soldiers to protect them because it's like, well, then what's your God doing, right? And so it says, I called for a fast there by the Ahava Canal so that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek Him, seek from Him a safe journey for us, our children, and all our 
property. And so we fasted and prayed to our God about this. And he answered us. So again, fasting and praying. Yeah? Go together. And then there's this, uh, then there's David. Nothing good. You know the story. David falls in love with Bathsheba, who has a husband, Uriah. And to make matters worse, he gets Bathsheba pregnant. And when he can't, <laughs> when he can't cover it up, he organizes for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to get sent to the front of the battle and killed. And then he marries Bathsheba. Like I said, not good. God then confronts David through Samuel. And he basically says, like, was all that I have given you not enough? That you had to take somebody else's wife. Like, I would have given you everything. And uh, he says, God says, as a punishment, the son that Bathsheba is going to bear is going to die. And so, this young boy becomes very sick. And when David realizes this is it, this is what's happening... says, then David prayed to God for the child and fasted. He would even go and spend the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood over him and tried to lift him from the ground, but he was unwilling and refused to eat food with them. So again, fasting and praying, right? Desperately seeking God. It didn't work. Seven days later, his son died. And when his servants, his servants are terrified to tell David that your son is dead. Because they're like, if he's reacted like this just to his son being sick, imagine what he's going to do when he realizes that his son has died. And so, but, so they're like whispering each other, like, what do we do? And David sees that they're, sees them whispering and he realizes what's happened. And he asks them, has my son died? And they say, yes. So David got up from the ground, bathed, put on oil, and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he entered the palace, requested that food be brought to him, and he ate. His servants say to him, what are you doing, right? While your child was still alive, you fasted and wept. Once the child is dead, you get up and eat food? And David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept because I thought perhaps the Lord will show pity and the child will live. But now he's dead. So why should I fast? Am I able to bring him back at this point? I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. He cannot return to me. And this is partly where we get the idea that kids who are under the age of responsibility, who are younger than they can really be responsible for their own choices and their own decisions, who die as kids, go to heaven. What is that age? In Jewish law, it was 12. 
That was when you had bar mitzvah, that when you, that's when you became responsible for yourself. Until then, your parents were responsible for your sins. But then you become, it's, yeah, I'm not sure that that's, anyway. That's between God and you, I don't know. But, but this is where we get this idea, is that David was confident that he was going to see his son. Um, but anyway, the point is, David did all this fasting and praying. What was he doing it for? Who was, who was he doing it for? Yep. His fasting was directed towards God. It wasn't just because he was really upset, because he was surely upset afterwards as well. But now there's no point anymore. Because the fasting was for God. Now in the New Testament, Jesus says, when you fast, when you fast, who's, who fasts? <laughs> Anyway, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. Is that familiar? It's part of the whole passage where Jesus is like, if you're doing these righteous things, these holy things, these godly things, so that other people will see you, doing them and think, wow, you're such a godly person. Good. That's your reward. People think you're a godly person, but don't expect anything from me. He says, I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when, when you fast, anoint your head with, anoint your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your father who sees in secret and who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so Jesus actually says like, not only should your, the focus, the purpose of your fast be God, like you're directing your fasting to Him, like try to get rid of any other excuse that you might have for doing it, right? That it's clear to yourself that the reason you're doing this is to plead to God, to show Him how deeply you and desperately and sincerely you are seeking Him in whatever it is you're fasting about. Um, yeah, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So there's like no temptation to fast so that other people will think that you're a really good Christian. Do you drink water when you fast? Yeah, I think so. I well, who you are? Me? Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So what you find actually is that fasting is quite common in the Bible. The disciples when they commissioned Paul and Barnabas and sent them out on their, mission, their first missionary journey, it says they did that with prayer and fasting before they sent them out. When Paul and Barnabas elected elders in a bunch of churches, it says that they made those decisions. They chose the elders with prayer and fasting. So whenever somebody's like really desperately seeking God in, a, in something in the Bible, it's there's often this prayer and fasting go together. Unfortunately, I think, it's not that common in like our wealthy, comfortable Western churches. Why? <laughs> so in my life, 
there are, in my life, there have only been two or three times when I have been desperate enough <laughs> to hear from God or to have, or yeah, to hear from God that I've chosen to demonstrate or that I've been sufficiently motivated to fast while praying with prayer. Um, which I think, I think it's partly a, a measure of like just how comfortable our lives are that we don't want to give up food for like for what um and for the most part i haven't for the most i guess my life has been relatively easy in otherwise maybe i would have been more motiv motivated more often to do that um I think that's part of the reason why we've looked at it many times, why Jesus said that it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because when your life, when you have most of the things you need for daily life, um, it's hard to feel like you need God. But the reality is that we are, you, we do all have things in our lives where we do desperately need Him. And... Um, I'd encourage you to consider, if you are in that situation, consider fasting with your prayer. Because the few times that I've done it, it's been amazing how clearly and, and fairly quickly I haven't had to fast very long before I've heard, before, before God's answered what I've been asking Him for. Um, yet even still, even knowing that, I don't do it very, haven't done it very much because I like eating. But that's kind of sad. Like you kind of wonder like how much more of God could I have in my life if I was more motivated to seek Him as desperately as some of these people did, you know? And one of the ways, like I said, that you show that desperation is, can be through fasting. Now, fasting, so we're on the one end, I think, in our modern churches where fasting is really not a part of our spiritual life, our prayer life. You can go in the other direction, the other extreme, where fasting essentially is just a religious practice, it's part of your calendar, it's part of your whatever, and you almost think that by doing it, by fasting, that you oblige God in some way to answer your prayers. There's this passage in Isaiah where God speaks quite directly to that, I think, quite powerfully. He says, they lament, why don't you notice when we fast? Why don't you pay attention when we humble ourselves? Look, at the same time you fast, you satisfy your selfish desires, you oppress your workers. Your fasting is accompanied by arguments, brawls, and fistfights. Do not fast as you do today, trying to make your voice heard in heaven. Is this really the kind of fasting that I want? Do I want a day when people merely humble themselves, bowing their heads like a reed and stretching out on sackcloth and ashes? Is this really what you call a fast, a day that is pleasing to the Lord? No, this is, this is the kind of fast I want. I want you to remove the sinful chains, to tear away the ropes of burdensome yoke, to set free the oppressed and to break every burdensome yoke. So basically what he's saying is like, this is, like I said, this is supposed to, the fasting is supposed to be a reflection of a deep, a deep desperation in you, in your heart, right? That you're demonstrating through fasting. 
it's supposed to reflect, yeah, both that, both that desperation and also a repentant and a, an obedient heart to God. And that if you don't have that, if you're just going on the rest of your life as normal, being mean to people, oppressing people, whatever else, getting into fights, and then you go and fast and you think that that's going to like make God ignore all the other stuff in your life. Like, you know, that's, yeah, it should reflect a, a repentant heart, which is also somewhere that fasting shows up a few times is where people have been confronted with this sin and they're so upset about it and so desperate for God's mercy that they fast and pray. Anyway, so that's fasting. Back to Persia. Why are the Jews fasting? Well, that's the question. Are they just super upset and they want everybody else to know how upset they are? To who? Yeah, I think, I think as, like I said, virtually 80% of the time that fasting is described in the Bible, it's fasting and prayer. It's fasting that's directed to God. And I think it's very, very likely that that's what's going on here too. And we'll see that actually in a little while where it becomes even more obvious is that this is their fasting, the Jewish people's fasting. It's desperately crying out to God to deliver them, to save them, to protect them. But then what's a bit strange is that, again, it, where is the prayer? No, but like, where is the prayer in the text? Does it say they prayed? Nah, it just says they fasted, as though fasting in itself means something. Which is a bit strange. But it's another, it's these places where reference to God, reference to worship, reference to anything spiritual seems to be like removed, hidden in the book of Esther. I think on purpose. Okay, so the world outside, the world in Susa, the entire Persian Empire is in turmoil. Every province, people are crying out, what's going on? But in the palace, they got no idea because no one was permitted to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So the Mordecai could mourn out in the streets, he wasn't allowed into the palace, and nor was anybody else who was in mourning. And in actual fact, you weren't even allowed to look sad in front of the king. Because the, this is like the greatest man on earth, right? King Xerxes. Who could possibly be sad when you're in the presence of somebody like that? That's the idea. And so if you do come into the, into the king's presence and you're not anything other than overjoyed at the privilege, that's like an insult to him. That's the idea. And you see that in, in the book of Nehemiah. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, 
When wine was brought to me, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now this is, Nehemiah has just found out about Jerusalem and he was so upset and he was prayer and fasting and all that kind of stuff, right? Now he's the one who has to give the king his wine when the king's eating. So he has to go and do that, go and do his job. But he's super depressed. And so previously I'd never been depressed in the king's presence because you weren't allowed to be. So the king said to me, why do you appear to be depressed when you aren't sick? What can this be other than sadness of the heart? And it says, this made me very fearful. And the reason he was scared was because you weren't supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. Now, he says a quick prayer and like the whole rest of the story of Nehemiah is amazing. But anyway, the point is, you were not allowed into the king's palace sad. And so actually nobody inside the palace, nobody important knew what was going on outside the palace walls. Okay. Verses four, verse four. Somebody, you can pass the, do you want to read? No. When Esther's female attendants and her, oh gosh, eunuch, eunuchs, came and informed her about Mordecai's behavior, the queen was overcome with anguish. Although she sent garments for Mordecai to put on so that she could remove his sackcloth, he would not accept them. This is kind of amazing. So the whole Persian world knows about this. Mordecai, who raised her as his own daughter, is right at the center of it, but Esther has no idea what's going on. Yeah. She's never allowed outside, so. So Esther's servants, eunuchs, they come and tell her like, look, Mordecai's really upset out there and says that Esther, when she, but they don't tell her why. And Esther, when she hears heartbroken, um, overcome with anguish. And so she sends clothes out to Mordecai and that might've been so that he could get dressed and come into the palace. But Mordecai's like, refuses the clothes. He's not interested. He's not going to stop mourning even for a moment. Not going to stop pleading out to God in this way. And that reminds me, uh, who, who has watched The Chosen? Who's, have you watched the end of season three? Okay. The last episode of season three, there's this, this psalm gets read out, but it's quite cool. It says, I will cry out to God and call for help. I will cry out to God and he will pay attention to me. In my time of trouble, I sought the Lord. I kept, raised, I kept my hand raised in prayer throughout the night. I refused to be comforted. I said, I will remember God while I groan. I will think about him while my strength leaves me. And that I think is like where Mordecai is at. He refuses to be comforted. The Psalms, I don't know if you've realized this or if you know this, but like they're incredibly raw and powerful and real. And pretty much anything that you're feeling in your life, you'll be able to find somebody writing a psalm that was feeling like you were. That's quite a, um, it's an incredible part of, the, part of the Bible. This psalm is written by Asaph, who was the worship leader in David and Solomon's reign. And we read actually in chapter three, we read another one of his psalms where he admits feeling jealous of those who are proud and wicked 
because everything in their lives seems to go so well. And he feels like I've wasted my time trying to serve, to live righteously and to live honorably to God. Like it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And this is, this is another one of his Psalms. Anyway, so Mordecai is like, no, I don't want your clothes. I'm out here in mourning, pleading to God. So then... So Esther called for Hathak, one of king's in, uh, eunuchs, who had been placed at her service, and instructed him to find out the cause and reason for Mordecai's behavior. So Hathak went to Mordecai at the plaza of the city in front of the king's gate. I find it interesting, actually, that like so many of the servants have names in this book. Like, who does it really matter? who it was that Esther sent out to speak to Mordecai. The, so I guess the question, like the question that I ask is like, why are they there? Why bother putting them in there? And my best guess is that closer to the time, these were names that people actually knew and that they could then like, you know, understand the story better, historical verification. Like they know that that was one of the king's eunuchs, but uh, for us, it's just, yeah, all these, all these names. Anyway, so Esther sends this guy, Hatak, to go find out what's wrong. Why is Mordecai so upset? Why is he refusing to put on clothes and come into the palace? And the wording is actually quite funny in the Hebrew, this to find out the cause and the reason. In Hebrew, it is Lada'at Mazer Ve'al Mazer. Mazer is what is this? What is it? What, yeah, what's this? What is it? And so it's like to know what it is and upon what it is. What is this and upon what is this? Like, what are you doing and why? It's pretty much what she says to him. Okay. Anybody else want to read? Go on. Go on. You're a good reader. <laughs> uh, verses 7 to 9. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he, may sh he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that, might, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supp supplication, I've never said that word before, to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Yep. So Mordecai basically explains to Esther what's happened, everything that's happened. She also, he's apparently well connected because he knows how much money Haman had offered the king in the palace to do this. And that presumably wasn't written on the edict that was published everywhere. But he knew that, he told Esther that. He also sent a copy of the edict as like proof in case she had any doubt. And he tells her, you need to go to King Xerxes and plead for our lives. There's something kind of subtle in there, though. He's speaking to this guy, Hatak, one of the eunuchs, one of the servants in the palace. And he tells Hatak to tell Esther to go to the king, implore him, and petition on behalf of her people, 
What does that tell Hathak? He basically outs her as Jewish, right? It's not hiding anymore. Or at least now he makes it so she can't really even hide. Okay. We're not going to finish, which is a bit annoying. But we'll go a little bit further. Uh, carefully. No, I'll throw it. <laughs> James. Anybody? Ten and eleven. Then Esther replied to Hatach with instructions for Mordecai. All the servants of the king and the people of the king's provinces know that there is only one law applicable to any man or woman who comes uninvited to the king in the inner court. That person will be put to death unless the king extends himself to the gold scepter, permitting him to be spared. Now I have not been invited to come to the king for some 30 days, I'm assuming. Yeah, 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 30 days, sorry. Yeah, so Mordecai tells Esther, you need to go to the king and plead for your life, plead for our lives. And Esther says, well, there's a few things in here. First, we're told about a law in the Persian Empire. What was that law? Yeah, you can't just show up uninvited and expect to talk to the king. And in fact, if you try, you are immediately sentenced to death. Like that's the default position. If you show up uninvited to the king, you're sentenced to death. The only exception is if the king grants you mercy, if he chooses to spare your life and he, does, he shows that by raising his scepter to you. Now, Esther says this is any man or woman who comes in uninvited, but that's probably not quite true. Xerxes' father was Darius, yeah? And Darius was not the son of the previous king, Cambyses II. Cambyses II died without any sons, and Darius took the throne through a civil war. But he didn't do it by himself. There were actually six other men that helped him. And once he became king, those six other men were given some special privileges. And one of the special privileges that those six men had was that they were allowed to come into the palace whenever they wanted. They didn't need to be invited. Um, now, after Darius, those six men, their families, the six families of Persia, became very, very important in the kingdom. And it's not impossible that Haman was a descendant of one of those families because he seemed to have quite easy access to the king. But there were, we think, a small group of people who were allowed to come into the king uninvited, but it was very small. Most of them were not. If you came in there, you were sentenced to death, and that even included the queen. She couldn't come to the king unless he had asked for her. Now, Esther's reply is kind of funny, almost a little bit sarcastic, I think. She says to Mordecai, all the servants of the king and the people of the king's provinces know this. Who does that include? Sorry? Yeah. She's basically like, absolutely everybody knows what happens if I do that. You know that too, right? 
all the servants of the king and all the people of the king's provinces. Everybody in Persia knows what will happen if I go to the king uninvited, including you. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Even worse, (laughs) I don't know. I don't think so. Even worse than that, she says she hasn't seen the king in a month. Which is kind of sad. She's been married, exactly. There's, she's been married to Xerxes for a little over four years. But if you remember, there's already been a second gathering of young women. He's got a new wife. She hasn't seen him in a month. She probably feels like he's forgotten she even exists. She has no idea where she stands with Xerxes at the moment and how he will respond if she shows up there uninvited. She also knows what happened to Vashti, right? When she didn't obey the rules, do what she was supposed to. And so she's absolutely terrified of this idea of just going to the king and and telling him she's Jewish and pleading that he somehow saves them. Interesting place to end. But we'll have to stop there. Cool. Yeah, the next part is super, super cool. Probably the one of the... Uh, anyway. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for uh, your word, for um, the incredible privilege it is to know you, Lord. I thank you that you are a God who is faithful, that a God that hears, Lord. And I ask that you would help us to uh, to seek you desperately when we when we need you, Lord, not to, yeah, I don't know, not to neglect the, the privilege we have of being able to bring our requests to you, Lord, and um, that you would maybe teach us how to, how to fast and pray, how to bring those petitions to you, those prayers to you, those requests to you with the full depth of emotion that we maybe, uh, maybe are feeling, Lord. Um, I ask that you be with us all this today, that you be with these guys as they go back to school this week. Uh, <laughs> that would be more fun than they maybe are thinking and that you bring us all back again safely next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.